Hi, this is Brent Skousen, youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. Thank you for tuning in today to another lesson taught by W. Cleon Skousen. Today's lecture is number 41 on the Old Testament, given in 1973 to his university class. It is unscripted and unedited. The lesson today is Isaiah chapters 56 through 65, supplemented by Dr. Skousen's book, The 4,000 Years. Today we cover chapter 22, Prophecy and Modern Times. Now sit back and join us in the classroom of W. Cleon Skousen. Enjoy! I need to ask you a couple of questions about uh, chapter 21 to make sure that you caught some of the highlights. Because so far as I know, the, there's never been a parallelogram done like this on uh, Nephi versus Isaiah across this way. I waited for somebody else to do it and they didn't because it gets to be quite a chore to do parallels and, and so that you match up verses and so forth and stop the verse right in the middle. Sometimes Nephi, uh, he'll just take a little a little tiny piece of a verse of uh, Isaiah and go on all about the sealed plates, etc. But there were some things in there that were brand new. And in the back of the chapter I said, list three new things that you got out of, the, of this parallel, parallelism that uh, were new to you, brand new. Now, maybe they weren't brand new. Maybe you knew all about it. But uh, when, I, when I did it, I, I noticed a couple of things that were kind of exciting. So um, I want you to name two or three for me. Anything that occurred to you that was, it, it was different than what you thought it was before? And who did it turn out to mean? Lamanite. Lamanite. Isn't that something? Right. And most people, most commentators say, uh, it says, woe unto Ariel, woe unto you. And uh, then it goes on to say, and it, was, it shall be like unto Ariel as they lay siege and set up fortresses, meaning just as Jerusalem would be pulled down as Isaiah had seen it by the Babylonians, so would these people be pulled down and hedged up. And as Nephi said, he was talking about uh, what kind of an enemy. Who was the enemy as it turned out? Uh, conquistadores. Pizarro, Cortez, and they moved in for the gold. And um, the next thing that these people knew, they were facing guns and horses and things that were completely unfamiliar to them. And they went down just like uh, uh, children. I think I've mentioned to you already, and I, I want to emphasize it in case I didn't, <clears throat> that the Spanish were under the illusion uh, that if they couldn't convert these people from idolatry, at least they could save their souls by baptizing them, you know, giving the cross baptism by sprinkling, so to speak, holy water and so forth, uh, just before they died. In other words, you strike them down and uh, just before they're killed, why, at least you save their souls. And that's the way some of them wrote in their rec records. They said here they were, they would, they would have human sacrifices as many as 2,000 one weekend. Blood all over the place. It's the most gory, ruthless, vicious people. Just got to kill them and save their souls. <laughs> so there was some mixed up thinking there. Uh, but uh, anyway, we estimate about 25 million Indians went down. It may have been more. But it's estimated that the Aztecs were around 12 million and the In Incas were about the same. And then they wiped out many of other tribes and so forth and reduced these tribes just to uh, a small percentage of what they've been, 15%, it's estimated, of what they had been. 
uh, of those two major tribes, Incas and Aztecs. So it's roughly, it's strictly a guess off the top of the head. But we know that at Hispaniola they killed off 300,000 Indians in 15 years. And there we have a figure. So that's what uh, he was talking about. Now, what, what else was new in that uh, comparison that comes to mind? Anything else? What about this, this root of Jesse? Now, there was something new. Who's this root of Jesse that Isaiah talks about? We know who the stem of Jesse was. That's the main, the main stem. Who's that? Jesus Christ. And then there is a... Trees have different kinds of uh, branches. And they have one that is that grows up straight. You agriculturists, what do we call those? That it just comes out and grows up straight. We often prune them off, as a matter of fact. What do we call them? come to my mind. I just proved one the other day. Anyway, they call them rod. What was the rod? One mighty and strong. Right? What's the branch? That's David of the latter days who will build the temple and prepare for the coming of the Jews. I guess I, I taught that in the Book of Mormon. We didn't have that in this class, did we? Okay. Alright. Now that's that's in uh, Isaiah. That We have the... Um, Doctrine and Covenants explaining what the stem and the root and the branch are spoken of by Isaiah. And the root turns out to be something really interesting. Who is the root? Looks like Joseph Smith doesn't. They asked Joseph Smith who is, who it, what, what it was and he said the Lord says it's the one who would be raised up in the latter days who would receive the priesthood and the keys to the gathering of Israel. Who got those? Joseph Smith got them. It was just kind of a modest way of, answer, of uh, handling the situation. But the rod is the one that's mighty and strong uh, that leads us back to uh, Jackson County, Missouri and assigns the various um, places of inheritance. The president of the church of that day is really who it is. But the branch is the, is the leader of the Jews who will build their temple and prepare them for the coming of the Messiah. Yeah, who's Jesse? Jesse's the father of whom? Father David. So that's the royal lineage. Uh, they're talking about the ancestor Jesus Christ through his mother Mary. Now, what does this tell you about uh, Joseph Smith? Yeah, isn't that interesting? And, and the root, it will be called the root of Jesse. So what does this tell you about the genealogy of Joseph Smith? Part Jewish? As a matter of fact, it says in the Doctrine and Covenants, he would be part Jewish and part Ephraim, who would be raised up in the latter days, etc. Never identified it with himself at all. But of course, when you analyze it, why, that's obviously who it is. That Joseph Smith was pure Ephraim. Brigham Young made this statement, and whether he meant pure Ephraim or a purified individual who's an Ephraimite is a question. I, I've gone back to that source, and uh, anyway, it looked like a temporary conflict. But you do have this scripture suggesting that there are two great leaders that will rise up in the latter days that are part Jewish and part Ephraim. And what a natural to, to be a reconciliation. This is the day when the Jewish people will finally find out who they are and all of that genius and so forth that some of them have used for nefarious, nefarious purposes will be channeled into God's work and you'll see what those brilliant minds are capable of doing for the kingdom. 
And our task is to be reconciled with them, the 11th chapter says, and work with them. And they, they themselves will tell you they're not easy to work with. I have a very good friend who's Jewish from California, now joined the church. He said, I can't stand Jews. <laughs> I asked him why he didn't join uh, um, uh, the B'nai, um, uh, what, what's the LDS Jewish group? Uh, B'nai Shalom. Uh, why didn't you join B'nai Shalom? Oh, he said, I can't stand Jews. I said, well, these are... These are um, LDS Jews, you know. He said, yes, that helps. <laughs> but it, was so, it was so interesting. And I said, well, what, why do you say you don't, don't enjoy your own people? They're too argumentative. I just don't like argumentative people. Too argumentative. And this is his number one asset. <laughs> he just loves to argue. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but it's real interesting. Now, we have different types of personalities. And you take the Anglo-Saxon groups, we, we who are Ephraimites, Anglo-Saxon. We have a Viking characteristic. A Viking characteristic. It's aggressive. Aggressive as the Dickens. And then we have... Um, it's, we keep intermarrying with the smoother people so that we get uh, a nice balance. Um, then we have our, our Polynesian groups and our Oriental groups as they come as Latter-day Saints, turning out to be marvelous saints. And they have this sweet spirit of uh, steadiness, lots of faith, lots of confidence, steadiness, steadiness. Ephraimites, oh, gung-ho, you know, gotta go big things. And uh, these people, if you get them sufficiently aroused, they'll do it too. Uh, Kiora. Uh, but um, under ordinary circumstances, why they, they are pleasant, congenial, sweet of spirit, like children. They really are. Just wonderful. It can be changed, but uh, that's basically their characteristic. The Jewish people are like Ephraim. Aggressive. Got brilliant minds. Always something cooking. Yeah. Change that, make a profit, you see. And uh, first thing you know, you got Ephraim and Judah, just like that. We've always crossed swords with Judah. And the, and the Lord says to Isaiah, the great thing of the latter days will be, these two great tribes of mine are going to combine their efforts. Now, it's important not to get mixed up on Manasseh. Manasseh is equal with Ephraim and is entitled to all the blessings of Ephraim. They are brothers, and they are equal. Ephraim, for the sake of order, has the leadership responsibility. And um, that's all. It's like husband and wife. They're both equal. And the husband is given a, a, an assignment in the area of leadership. doesn't make him any better than his wife at all. But for the sake of order in the kingdom, that's the way it is. And that's the way it is with Ephraim. Ephraim carries the weight of that responsibility. But Manasseh and Ephraim are equal and have great responsibility in the latter days. And they very frequently will speak of Ephraim this and Ephraim that and the stick of Ephraim, you know, all of that. Well, of course, it turns out it's the stick of Joseph. And uh, it's at Manasseh and Ephraim together. We're equal. Okay. Any questions on that part? The, yes, the branch. The branch is, is a great leader and... Uh, and the root. Yeah, there's yet to be manifest. David is, is his name. Jerusalem. Yes, he'll go right on into the millennium. Not David Ben-Gurion, I don't think. But it's a Jewish David. And he's a descendant of King David. 
and you have a little Ephraimite blood in there. Doesn't say, doesn't say it. We don't have uh, hardly any of uh, Joseph's people in the church, which is one of the uh, ironical things. However, some of them are joining now. Uh, uh, children of his brothers and sisters are joining. Now, um, just one or two other things that were unusual. Uh, Nephi says, I noticed something. Isaiah's a little too broad on one point. Uh, I noticed a little detail I probably ought to include here. See, he saw this when he was only 16 years old, and every time he sees something that uh, his father didn't notice or somebody else doesn't notice, he reacts just like a 16-year-old should. Uh, he says, uh, uh, our generation's got something going too, you see. We noticed something that olders didn't notice. And so Nephi noticed that his father hadn't realized that that water down at the bottom of the gulf was sewer water. It was filthy, just terrible. But he said, I noticed it. Okay, now he has the same thing here with Isaiah. As he watched the vision of the learned man uh, receiving something, Isaiah said he would be given the what? The learned man would be given the, the book, but this is in a very broad poetic sense. Nephi says, actually, he won't be given the book. He'll be given the words of the book. I noticed that. Now, in a broad sense, he did get the book, didn't he? He got the, he got the contents of the book, copied off for him so he could see if he could translate them. said he couldn't read a sealed book. But Nephi said, actually, he didn't, he didn't get possession of the book as such, the plates. He only got the words of the book. A little interesting detail. Then um, um, Isaiah knew there would be witnesses and so forth, but he didn't, uh, didn't know what uh, Nephi knew. Nephi knew that there would be three witnesses and certain other ones. He didn't know how many. Uh, in the vision, he didn't take time to count, maybe. But he did know that there were some others that got a witness, not as great a witness. Who were the three witnesses? Oliver Cowdery, Martin Harris, and David Whitmer. All right. What did they get to see? They are the three witnesses. What did they get to see? What was the first and most important thing they saw? Moroni. They got to see the angelic minister. Then they got to see the plates. It was a table, actually, and it was covered with things. It was just covered with things. And that included the plates, the Urim and Thummim, Sword of Laban, the Leohona, brass plates, plates of Nephi. They're all there. So uh, he really, that was a treasure. And they got to go up and they thumbed the brass plates. They got to see them and feel them. It was really great. We didn't have Book of Mormon together, did we? Because that's where we cover all that. Oliver Cowdery was allowed to accompany Joseph Smith on two occasions when they went into the Nephite library. And he said, it actually is in the Hill Cumorah. And he said, it was a fairly good-sized room. There was a stone table in the center of the room. And he said, I remember all the details except where the light came from. He said, I never stopped to see what the source of light was while we were there. But he said, it was way back into the hill. And he said, we went in, and the first time I was there, the plates that we'd seen as witnesses were lying on the stone table, and up against the wall in a sheath was the sword of Laban. And all around the sides of the room were just stacks of metal plates, wagon loads of metal plates. Underneath the table there were metal plates. There were lots of metal plates. Then he said, the, the next and last time I got to go with Joseph Smith into the library, uh, the sword was off the wall. 
and it was lying across the plates, and it said, uh, uh, this sword will not be sheathed until the kingdom of God has come in power, something to that effect. That was the last time the sword of Laban has been seen, so far as we know. Now, that's the incident. It's told by Brigham Young just before his death. He said, now there's some things that we've kept from the saints that we must not carry to the grave with us. And so he turned to the brethren, so to speak, and uh, I want to say this as accurately as I remember Oliver Cowdery saying it. Correct me if I'm in error in any way. And then he related it, and it's in the journal discourses. We got several treasures that he says, now I must tell you this before we pass from this stage of life. Then you get another one of those treasures, you see, that has been very sacred and confidential with them that they did not share right until uh, they knew they were going to be taken. Now, Nephi wanted to do the same thing. He wanted to tell us how we come out in 1975 and uh, 1984 and 1992. And uh, we now think we know why he put so much of Isaiah in. Because when he had that vision of the tree of life at 16, the Lord let him write the whole thing up to the second coming. And just as it got to the point where something happens to this great Gentile nation, he wouldn't let him put down what happens. The Lord stopped him. He said, now, now John is going to write that up, so don't, you don't write it. I'll show it to you, but don't write it up. Oh, John's going to write it. Now, there was no prohibition that it shouldn't be told. He just says, you don't write it. He wasn't told he couldn't tell people, but don't you write it. John will write it, who will come with the Savior. 600 years hence. So he gets reading the brass plates, and here's Isaiah telling the whole thing. And he knows exactly what Isaiah means by all of this. So he starts pumping Isaiah to these people so he can make a commentary on it. And he, you notice how he does it. He, he's, it's all Isaiah that relates to the second coming. That's the only part of Isaiah he uses. Everything that relates to the second coming. And he gets right up once more He's explaining to his brethren over here in America after they got over here and he read the brass plates and got all that jammed into Second Nephi, which nobody can read. Everybody stops on Second Nephi and chokes off. And uh, <laughs> you wonder, since he knew so much about it, why he would put Isaiah in? We think we now know. He was explaining to his brethren how it'll go and this great Gentile nation rises up and all these things happen. And all of a sudden the Spirit says, that's enough, Nephi, that's enough. Leave it right there. Oh, he said, I was going to tell you the rest. The Lord says not to tell you anymore, so I won't tell you anymore. And I'm awfully glad we don't know how it came out, or how it's going to come out myself. Um, I know how frail we are as human beings. If you knew it was going to come out all right, the Lord's going to take care of it. That kind of changes things, doesn't it? Relax, relax. Join the country club. Live it up. He's going to take care of it. Send the book. And if you knew that under no circumstances were we going to be able to avoid this great catastrophe that will wipe out the whole of the Gentile civilization on this continent and the saints themselves barely escape, that would do something to you, wouldn't it? That would put us in a morbid depression. I just as soon have it sufficient under the day as the evil thereof, and let us have the challenge of working it out. On the 21st chapter of 3 Nephi, the Lord says we can make it. He doesn't say we will make it. He says we can make it. 21st chapter of 3rd Nephi. And President McKay says we dare not work for anything less. So uh, this is uh, one of, it's his own personal statement that if the Gentiles of this land will allow him to continue his work and not force the missionaries out from among them, 
will not uh, prevent him from making this his world headquarters to prepare the earth for the second coming. If they'll just tolerate the work of the last days, they can survive <clears throat> and help build a new Jerusalem. Otherwise, he said they will be purged from the land just like the Jaredites. And when Wilfred Woodruff saw the vision of it, I've told you about that, haven't I? By Wilfred Woodruff's vision? I'll tell you very briefly, and then, then we'll answer your question. He saw what would happen if we don't make it. And it's terrible. It's so terrible the church will not allow the revelation to be published. But I have a copy of it. And brethren... <laughs> and the brethren said it was all right for us to, to include it in our voice of warning. But it, it, it could be misunderstood by other people. And so it is not to be written and it is, or it is not to be distributed. So it isn't. But anyway, President Woodruff was shown what would happen if we didn't make it. And he saw the saints, first of all. And there was some cause of great serious illness. And it was so bad that the people were barely able to minister to one another. And uh, then he started moving um, across the continent. And he said, I, I was just, it was an overview of the whole continent as I moved across it. And he said, as I reached the Middle West, everything was in civil war. Families were fighting against families, uh, communities against communities, states against states. I got to Washington, all the damage had been done, none left alive. The whole capital city was uh, just completely demolished. He said, I went to Baltimore and the dead were piled high, as high as the monument of the War of 1812 where I used to preach. I recognized the monument. The dead were piled as high as the monument. Went to Philadelphia, nobody alive. Moved over into New York and saw there were people that, that remained alive who were in the basements. But he said, right while I was watching it, the wind and fire came and took the whole city. And then he said, gradually I began moving back across the Midwest. Nothing was alive. Fire had destroyed everything. Nothing was alive. And as I moved toward the Rocky Mountains, I could see people all walking. Nobody was in any kind of vehicle. Everybody walking with little tiny packs, trying to get to the mountains where there were food where there was food. And he said, then I got to the mountains and the saints had been gathered there. They'd recovered from whatever illness it was and they were getting ready now to expand out and, and restore order and build things up. And then he said, I realized the, the, the reality, the literal reality of the prophecies and why the Lord bore down so hard in Third Nephi, especially chapter 21, about the Gentile cities absolutely desolated I think it's 22 where it says, and when the ten tribes come, they will inhabit the desolated cities of the Gentiles, you see, if this comes to pass. Pardon? Um, yes, yes. And that's why Heber C. Kimball said, if we don't make it and we can't save this country, and they do go antichrist, and they do drive the saints from among them, there won't even be a yellow dog to wag its tail when we go back to Missouri. And Brigham Young then, excuse me, Brigham Young was the one that gave the prophecy first, said he'd seen it in vision. And then it was that, the, uh, that Heber C. Kimball says, it will be even as President Young has said, that when we go back there will not be a yellow dog to wag its tail. Now President, President McKay says, now, the last half of the 22nd, uh, 21st chapter says, but if the Gentiles will repent, if they will allow me to continue doing my work here, if they will tolerate my saints and my work, they will not only survive but help us build a new Jerusalem. 
And President McKay said, now that's what we're going for. President Dyer was um, uh, ordained an apostle to go back to Missouri and lay the foundation for the alternative. We began buying up all the property. Adamon Diamonds now being made into a magnificent park. We began buying up the property uh, all around the temple block and so forth. See, that's the alternative approach. We're going to go for 25,000 missionaries now instead of 12. And you'll, you'll see the United States now ebbing. The 60s were terrible. We moved way off of anything that was decent and responsible over here into the the insanity drug arena of riots, violence, uh, crime jumped up 300%. Uh, it was a terrible period, the crazy 60s. Now people are sick of it, fed up with it, and you've got, you've got a reaction setting in, even in the Supreme Court, can't believe it. And, uh, <clears throat> and, and we're stabilizing, we're moving back. And uh, down at the Freeman Institute, we've been collecting the material pro and con on each of the issues as they've occurred. And we're getting a valuable historical treasure, uh, finally, of things that already are disappearing from other sources. And it's becoming more valuable by the day, as a matter of fact, because we pulled this stuff right at the time that it was current. And people remember reading it, but they can't get their hands on it. Can't remember what paper or anything. And we've been assembling it, depending on which point of view, so that you can get both points of view. And it's becoming more valuable by the year. We're moving now into a reactionary period which tends to be favorable, pushing against uh, opposing sex education in the schools, opposing promiscuity, uh, opposing the, um, as one of the psychologists told me just the other night, he's got several of the professors from uh, on his sister institution who got uh, mixed up in that uh, mate trading thing that was supposed to be such a great deal, a good deal. And they're, they're, they've all become psychoneurotic, both the wives and the husbands. And he's one of those assigned to try and straighten out a few of them. And he said it isn't easy because uh, it didn't turn out like they expected. They got themselves all emotionally confused. Uh, it was supposed to be very, uh, um, what was it, what they call it, um, impersonal. It was supposed to be very impersonal uh, as they went swinging. It didn't become impersonal. It was supposed to make their, uh, their um, marriages stronger. They lost their own self-respect and it ruined their relationship. Anyway, the Lord always turns out to be right. And no, the prophecy is that absolutely the Constitution would be attacked and hanged by a thread and maybe not be saved. Well, it says, and if it is saved, the elders of Israel would save it, if it is saved. That's just the way he said it. Now, President Young, uh, Brother Orson Hyde said, I think he said that it was going to fall, definitely. No, President Young said, he said it could fall, but if, if it didn't, it would be because the elders of Israel had, had rallied good people and had saved it. Uh, but in his 4th of July address of 1856, Orson Hyde uh, described what would happen if we went all the way down into a dictatorial society and then broke loose again and came up the other side when the elders of Israel had a chance to provide some leadership on constitutional principles. And it's with that possibility in mind that we're now providing a, a complete seminar on the Constitution phrase by phrase so that it can be understood. And Willis Stone is working with us and I'll be with him a week from Saturday night and uh, 
we're going to com 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 complete it, we think, this year. It'll be about 16 presentations on, on tape. And, and from, a, from my standpoint as a lawyer and student of constitutional law, this has been so exciting because I've worked on this for years and years and I couldn't come up with the right formula. And then he and I got together about a year ago and we talked about some, n none of the seminars were working. Uh, nobody lasted after about the third presentation. So we moved over and both of us felt there was inspiration behind it into a whole new approach, a completely new approach that nobody else had tried before. And we've, um, we've done two sample lectures and gotten a marvelous reaction. So we're very encouraged. It'll be available to anybody to use. Now, we don't have John's writing on that part. Don't even have it. We have a, there are a lot of things Isaiah wrote we don't have now. We, we know that, too. As I mentioned that to you in your book, there's some things Isaiah wrote we now don't have either. But the Lord said it would be revealed. Now, we have one of the writings of John the Beloved that nobody else has. Where's that? Doctrine and Covenants section 7? Yeah, I think it is 7. In which John explains a conversation between Jesus and Peter and himself on his being translated. And Peter objected. So what, what do you mean? Why isn't he going to die too? And the Savior said, well, you got what you asked for. I'm giving him what he asked for. He wants to stay and minister in the earth till I come the second time. You wanted to come and join me as soon as you could. So you will, and he will. It's, it's a real interesting. Doctrine and Covenants, section 7. Right. I was thinking as of this morning, not then. <laughs> Actually, um, uh, the, the, um, there have been some uh, real interesting developments in the, in the court lately. Uh, the latest issue of the Freeman Report is the actual citations of the two main cases on abortion. Analyzed. Actually quoting the judges, both pro and con, they had a minority opinion, you know, in each case. And taking it apart for you so that you can analyze what the judges are talking about. And they came right out and said what the um, University of Utah uh, Hospital announced uh, yesterday, that they are not going to take any abortions on demand. And the Supreme Court says, and you don't have to. Nobody does, either a state hospital or a private hospital. If it isn't a medical problem and they have moral principles or scruples against abortion, no hospital has to provide it. Now, so you didn't hear that, did you? That wasn't uh, publicized. So in our Freeman Report, We've got both of those analyzed. Those um, are temporarily free to BYU students. All you have to do is just go, go by there and walk in the door and pick one up. But they, they're, they will soon be 50 cents a copy. The um, introductory period is almost over. Okay. Unless one subscribes and then it's $6 a year. But uh, it's, that's just so it can come out. But we're finding that by presenting both sides, we're getting 20,000 copies now going out with each issue to colleges and universities all over the West. And so it's a, it's a new kind of service where in one paper you can hear both sides told by the best people of both sides, the most responsible people of both sides. just saves you all kinds of, of time. And what's better, it gives you an educated opinion, you see. Regardless of which side you're on, you know what side the other person is on and what his real position is. And sometimes it isn't important to you, like um, equal rights amendment. You see, for the moment, that's gone. That's going to come up every year from here on. 
and everybody's going to get all frantic about it next year and say, oh my goodness, that's, you know, what, what did they say? What, what's, what, what was the problem there? It's such a simple amendment. So, you know, what was the problem? Let's see. Oh, it's in my file. So you pull it out, and there it is, both sides. And, and you've got it at your fingertips again. Uh, makes you a much more competent um, counselor when you've got your source material. So anyway, that's the service we're trying to render gradually. Now, I wanted you to notice in chapter 22 that um, prophecies have multiple fulfillments. And very often you will find in Isaiah's life the very things that would be more eloquently demonstrated in the Savior's life. And so uh, he talks, and you can't tell whether he's talking about himself and the, or the Savior. And sometimes he's talking about both. Uh, he talks about the um, desert blossoming as a rose. Well, that particular chapter is talking about the desert blossoming when the ten tribes come. Then what is everybody talking about Utah and the blossoming of the ro de desert as a rose, etc.? Does it apply? What about Israel? Is that blossoming as a rose? Yes, and that's what one of the other passages said. So there are multiple fulfillments of prophecies. Kind of get used to that. Somebody will say, well, this is when it was fulfilled. Another one says, oh, no, no, that's when it was fulfilled. It's fulfilled both times. And Isaiah, when he's writing, he says, isn't that amazing? Same thing happens up here. He's watching the vision. Fantastic. So he writes it all down, and it's fulfilled over and over again. It's called multiple fulfillment. Now, the Jesus says, great are the words of Isaiah, and I want you to search them, he said to the Nephites. Now, did he know about the two Zions? But he didn't call them both Zions most of the time. How do we know for sure that he knew about the new Jerusalem and the old Jerusalem? What is there in his writings that proves that he knew that there was a distinction? And there were two places. Yeah, he talks about them both in the same sentence, doesn't he? And he distinguished them by calling the American center what? Zion most of the time. And, Jeru and, and what did he call Jerusalem? Yeah, I gave that one away. Okay. He called that one Jerusalem. Now, once in a while, he'll call Jerusalem Zion too. Is that all right? Where he identifies it? But you know, the way that you distinguish it is because in the same sentence, he will say, this will happen in Jerusalem and this will happen in Zion. Or this we say to Jerusalem and this we say to Zion. Or uh, the law shall go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from... Sounds different, doesn't it? So two different places. Yeah, he, he knew what he was talking about. Now it talks about the great gathering, and I have just a word here to talk about the ten tribes uh, very quickly here. Um, notice that he continually, he not only he but other prophets, distinguish between Jews who are what? Jews are what in the earth? Dispersed. And what about the ten tribes? They are outcasts. Now he's constantly distinguishing between the dispersed Jews and the cast out ten tribes. There are little hints here and there on which much speculation has been based, but which do, seems to have some merit that our Heavenly Father, or through His Son, actually transferred them right off of this planet. Interplanetary transplantation is a very simple thing to the Lord. He does it all the time. City of Enoch, City of Melchizedek, um, all of the converted people under the early days of Noah's administration, interplanetary transplantation. No need for... Um, space suit or anything. 
All he does is transfigure them, suspends the, uh, as the Book of Mormon calls it, the, the uh, uh, it says, and the earth will no longer have power over them, meaning the things that, to which you and I are subject, so that they don't need oxygen, and um, they aren't uh, subject to gravitation unless they want to be. It's just one of the, it's one of the sciences of the heavens that uh, we get a chance to watch without understanding. Anyway, there's a hint that that's the case. When they return, their, their mode of entry will be such that everybody will, it'll be the sensational news from here to the end of the millennium. Nobody will talk about the dividing of a little dinky Red Sea. <laughs> They're going to talk about the great highway out of the midst of the deep, which could be either space or water. And because they are a unit and were visited by the Lord, right after he visited the Nephites, and because they are going to bring their records with them, and because we know that John the Beloved right now is organizing them and preparing them to come, the Prophet Joseph says, this would suggest they're intact somewhere, separate. Not dispersed, but cast out and about ready to be cast in again. There is some apocryphal material, and that's all it is. It's only apocryphal, which says that Joseph Smith himself said they were not on this earth, but it were elsewhere. Anyway, they're lost. And we ex exhibit our faith by patiently waiting for their return. One thing I do want you to remember, though, and that is that the hollow earth theory is a fake. Uh, thousands and thousands of volumes of, the, of the, uh, the book called The Hollow Earth, published in 1928, uh, was distributed by this man who said he was up north and he saw a big hole he went down in there and it was underneath the ice and the sunshine would come through and it was just like a hot house and people living happily and everything real nice. And a lot of Latter-day Saints believed. And then somebody got up north, you see, and took a look. No hole, just eyes. So um, you're going to keep, you'll hear continually about the hollow earth theory. So that's all that there is to that. Uh, now, um, just a word about the... Um, about the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Orson Hyde was sent over in 1841 to dedicate Israel for the gathering of the Jews. And there were a few Jews there. There always have been, have been a few Jews there. And there were a few Arabs too. But it was almost a depopulated land. It really was. So it was dedicated on October the 24th, 1841. Orson Hyde then returned home. He almost starved on his way over. He really suffered to get over to fulfill that mission. But he'd seen himself in vision. The Lord had already shown him how he should do it. He did not stand up and raise up his hands and say, I dedicate this land and, the, and so forth. He saw himself seated on the side of the Mount of Olives and writing it. And the Israeli government told President uh, Lee just last summer that they thought it would be a nice thing if uh, we had some kind of a plaque there in honor of Orson Hyde, the first American Zionist, they call him. And uh, this might be done someday. That's going to be a thrill if, if that's done. I take the people, and we get up on Mount of Olives where we'll be a little over a month from now, and we look right down on Temple Square, and and we just stay there for about an hour and a half, and I tell them all the wonderful things that's happened there. That's where Melchizedek had his city of Salem. That's where Abraham sacrificed his son. That's where the Temple of Solomon was. That's where Jesus taught. And the new walls are built on top of the old walls, the Golden Gate through which he used to pass, the Gate of Peace. It's there. 
rebuilt on the same original foundations. There's Brook Kidron. There are olive trees, yea, this big around, believed by agronomists to have been there about the time of Christ. And it does something to you to get down there right where it happened. Well, these people then began gathering back to um, Israel as a result of persecution. Now, here's how the persecution started, and all of you should know this story. I have it beginning on page 617. But the Russian czar had a lot of wealthy Jews, and his advisor said, wouldn't it be a good thing if we had an excuse to expropriate all their property? They said, if we can convince the czar that they're all a bunch of um, renegades and uh, uh, criminals at heart that are subversive, maybe he'd do it. So they went to France, and we've now traced the history of the Protocols of the Israel of, Elders of Israel. They got an 1850 popular book called Conversations with the Devil. And it was really, the subtitle was, Conversations Between Montesquieu and Machiavelli. Well, Machiavelli was all for taking over the world and forcing the stupid masses to do what's good for them. And so they, they took that out of his book and attributed it to a council of Jewish elders. Put it in manuscript, sent it to the czar, he believed it, and you had a big program, uh, program in which uh, the Jews were driven out and persecuted. Then in due time, that was in the early 1890s, then in due time it got to England, and England published it. And another big wave of persecution of the Jews occurred, and that's your fiddler on the roof period. That's when it happened. As a result of that publish, publication of the elder protocols of the elders of Zion. Well, by 1922, Henry Ford was all excited about it, and he got the thing going. So President Grant issued a letter to the saints. I have it in volume two of Hidden Treasures from the Book of Mormon. And President Grant said, now, Satan is trying to divide us from this other tribe with whom we have the responsibility of providing leadership and government throughout the millennium. And Isaiah said that there would cease to be envy between the two of us. No Latter-day Saint must get on this anti-Semitic pitch. That's Lucifer's program. And there are plenty of Jewish people that the Lord is offended by, as he is with all other people who are disobedient. But there are many righteous Jews, and he is going to use them for great leadership in his own due time. They will be purged first and cleansed and humbled. Nevertheless, he said, don't any of you get on this drive. Then he said, if, if, if something is done that's bad, call it by its evil name. Don't say it's Jewish. Say it's robbery or burglary or murder. Don't say it's Catholic or Methodist or Mormon or British or American or Irish. Call it by its name. You know how some people go around, they'll say, well, what can you expect from Pollocks, you know? <laughs> okay. The Lord said, that's bad. Don't do that. Okay. Looks like it's about time.